3: Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back. I'd planned to talk this week about bread being at the very center of our civilization, and I think we are still going to talk about that. But a very pressing matter is on all of our minds this week, and that is the war in Ukraine, waged by the Russian Federation and led by Vladimir Putin. Putin is taken to recounting history from his own perspective, talking about invasions that the country is going to make to denazify the Ukraine or take back what is rightfully Russia's. That history has a deep, deep deep-seated root that goes well beyond World War II and well beyond World War I even. Putin is acting more like a malevolent Catherine the Great who made Russia the dominant power in Crimea and the Ukraine. And if we want to talk about historical analogies, There's still time for Putin to become Tsar Nicholas I, who after his invasion of Crimea was pushed back by Ottoman, French, British, and Italian forces. Many people still see the Crimean war as a religious conflict. It was in fact a commercial one, as was Catherine the Great's expansion, as is Vladimir Putin's. And if we think about it that way, we must see Ukraine as the breadbasket of Europe. And for anyone who doesn't already know, The flag of Ukraine with its blue top and its yellow bottom is meant to represent blue skies and wheat fields. Grain has always been important to the Ukraine. It's been important to the world. According to Herodotus in the 5th century BCE, the Egyptian pharaoh ordered an experiment to investigate language and human ability to speak. He forced two children into exile and forbid their minders to speak to them. And after a couple of years, the children spoke the word... Bikos, a Phrygian word for bread. The Egyptians concluded that Phrygian is the first and natural language of humans, but interestingly, the demand for bread was probably the most important thing that came out of that experiment, an enduring lesson of what matters most to humans. Bread and grain are innate to human culture and language, and the rich soil of the Ukraine is a place where grain grows remarkably well. Who better to tell us about the global history of grain than Scott Reynolds Nelson, whose new book, Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat Remade the World, begins 10,000 years before the Pharaoh's experiment. And it begins in Odessa in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, where there are innumerable lessons for our present day. Scott Reynolds Nelson is the Georgia Athletic Association Professor of History at the University of Georgia, Athens. If you haven't read any of his books, check out John Henry, or books on economic history, namely, A Nation of Deadbeats, which is a history of financial panics and depressions. The book was published in 2012, not long after the greatest financial disaster of our time. And I imagine we'll probably talk today a little bit about the economic situation that the world faces today. But Scott is also a masterful writer. He weaves together politics, economics, and sociocultural narratives. And when I met him for the first time, more than a decade ago, he was writing about Southern foodways and how Confederate soldiers found relief in canned peaches that arrived at the front line. He has a knack for getting into the shoes of historical characters, and his latest book, Oceans of Grain, is no exception. Thanks for talking to us, Scott, and welcome to the show on this uh, very historic but sad day for Ukraine.
2: Thanks so much for having me,
3: Michael. Well, I think what we really need to start with is because, you know, this is the we're, we're speaking on the, the very day that Russia has invaded the Ukraine uh, and it's 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 a really sad sight to watch. But your book starts off in Odessa and you talk about these black paths, which are, as you say, ancient trade routes across continents and oceans. Why are these so important for everything and why start the examination in Odessa and in the Ukraine?
2: Right. So the black paths as they're called Chorni uh, Shlaki in uh, Ukrainian are they come first. They they are ancient. They go back before any empires. 2800 BC we know that there are these paths that connect grain regions to the coast and empires tax those pathways in the same way that microbes do. Uh culture is primarily a set of techniques associated with collecting, preparing and distributing that bounty and Those are the very same corridors that uh, Russia is now invading uh, Ukraine. Odessa is the deep port. It's the jewel of the crown of Ukraine because it's the place where all the grain is gathered uh, for dropping it
3: into the ocean. Well, that's remarkable to think that the same places that... Putin is sort of going, the way he's going into Ukraine of the same paths that were taken by traders 10,000 years ago. I mean, the other starting point for the book is Ukraine's unique terrar and geography. Uh, Catherine the Great initiated a major change in Russian thinking that makes the Ukraine so vital to Russia's future. Can you tell us a little bit about her vision and how it changed global commerce?
2: Uh, Yeah, so Catherine was greatly influenced by the physiocrats who argued that a grain harvest is central to any empire. But rather than protecting it with the grain with a central ring that consumes, a middle ring that produces an outer ring that feeds the armies, an empire can succeed by selling grain to other empires. And that's her reason for invading uh, what we now call Ukraine, invading that region, uh, attacking uh, basically the Crimean Khanate and the uh, Ottoman Empire and that um that thinking the idea that the plains are the most important thing that ukraine is the most uh, valuable region is um you know motivates nine wars <laughs> after that in every case russia trying to dominate uh, the northern part of the black sea so it's it's this is what we're seeing today uh, has been happening again and again for uh, literally
3: hundreds of years it's, it, it's that's incredible, and it just shows the importance of history for today. I mean, Vladimir Putin this week has been invoking history in a way that isn't wholly inaccurate, but it's certainly taken very much out of context. Are you surprised that he's not quoting Catherine the Great, who was you know incredibly successful in you know wrangling Ukraine for the Russian Empire?
2: Uh, I, I, I'm not surprised because Catherine's invasion of Ukraine kind of violates his story. You know, his story is that. Ukraine is historically part of Russia, uh, and what what Catherine's invasion shows is that Ukraine was not part of Russia. It was it was a thing to you know uh, to take to seize, and um, yeah, because in a way, Ukraine is is really the ancient center of Russia, and uh, Russia is the kind of later stage. I don't know if you saw the U.S. embassy recently has been trolling Putin uh, a couple of days ago with a picture of you know. Uh, each all these different sites uh, built in 800 and 900 and 1100 in Ukraine. And then what Moscow looks at the same time, which is basically a forest.
3: Right. There's that whole uh, Kievan Rus uh, uh, kind of uh, middle right. middle aged civilization. Yeah, uh, of, of course, mm-hmm. he doesn't want to go that, that far. Uh, I think the other really right. interesting thing about your, your book is that it really shows the, the twist of fate that happens when the United States turns on its grain production capacities. And it really comes at the expense of that Ukrainian region. And you, and you mentioned the physiocratic view of power and how that made its way to the United States in the 18th century. How do Americans set about making that, how do they develop that in, in the North American continent?
2: Uh, yeah, so so basically the same thing that motivates Catherine the Great with the physiocrats, this idea that, a, that an empire can expel grain, also motivates Jefferson and Franklin, who are reading the same physiocratic writers uh, at, at the same time. Um, and so just like Catherine's, you which says, you know, basically sets up a laws and principles for, uh, Russia mobilizing armies to invade the plains, uh, North of the black sea, Jefferson and Franklin also it's a recipe for a creation of the nation. Um, they, the American seaboard colonies have been provisioning the Caribbean for a century and a half, but for Jefferson and Franklin, the physiography becomes a recipe for national national creation. You feed the Caribbean, but you also feed the British navies. You also expand across the plains. You seize lands, uh, not from the Khans in Crimea, but from the Algonquins in what we now call the Midwest, the Cherokee and what we call uh, the kind of Southeast. Um, And then when the Napoleonic Wars come, the U.S. benefits because the the U.S. can feed uh, navies in particular. Uh, Jefferson said, uh, in classic physiocratic sense, our duty is to feed and theirs is to fight. We may hope that they eat a great deal. So this this strategy of feeding others who are at war is something that the United States benefits greatly from.
3: It's it's really what makes the U.S. uh, a powerful nation in the uh, late 18th century. It transforms the rest of the world too, because as trade is sort of diminishing in uh, the Black Sea, and those black those black paths are changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's wars that break out. I mean, you, you really show the Crimean war as a war over grain rather than one about religion or balance of power politics, right?
2: Right, And right. uh, this is quite unpopular among European historians the Russian historians, Ukrainian historians. But I, I do think that you know it's it's this is really uh, uh, I- important. The Ukraine plane is to dry and expel grain in the sea to Italy, where it will be re-exported to London, Liverpool, Antwerp, and Amsterdam to to build those. Cities and it does uh, b- build those cities it's um yeah so so it's 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 absolutely kind of part of the strategy of imperial control for the Russian Empire,
3: yeah, I think it's a fascinating take and it's one of the historiographical uh, interpretations that's gonna uh, I think people are going to really engage with. I couldn't also uh, I couldn't also let you go without talking about Alexis de Tocqueville and his prediction that the United States and Russia would be the two great powers of the world. And he wrote that uh, "Democracy in America" in 1835. It's happening around the same time that these physiocrats are, are sort of coming into vogue. How does it all go wrong for Russia, though, in the 19th century, and how does grain play a central part in that story?
2: Uh, yeah, so. Russia's role starting from the you know kind of founding of Odessa in the 1790s is to expel grain to Italy, where it's going to be re-exported to these, these major cities. Uh, and then from the 1820 to 1860, the U.S. is really just exporting cotton to Europe, right? Uh, it travels better. It travels lo- a longer distance. But when the U.S. Civil War starts and the South secedes, cotton is off the table. And then uh, suddenly the uh, troop uh, the, the U.S. needs another form of foreign supply and grain is the the thing it returns to. Also, troops have to be fed in the impoverished parts of the South. Uh, the Union Army then promotes four long-distance railway corridors from Chicago to New York, uh, and then it breaks up feed contracts into hundreds of little contracts that we call the futures con- market. And once the war is over the and the Atlantic is filled with surplus sailing ships, the U.S. just swamps Russia. So from the middle of the 1860s until uh, well really until the 1890s um the u s is as more than as more than doubled its exports in relation to russia. Grain prices drop precipitously, food prices drop precipitously in these cities and uh and Russia can't compete at first uh it it tries to but it but it takes almost 30 years for Imperial russia to kind of recover from this um uh u s juggernaut that emerges during the war, the Civil
3: war. And that juggernaut never goes away. Right. I mean, American grain production persists pretty much in perpetuity for the rest of, you know, it's still around now. Am I right in saying that?
2: Right. Right. I I remember talking to an economist, uh, somebody who started out, got his Ph.D. in economics and in history and went on to become a journalist. And he said he was uh, that he what struck him was that the U.S. He he like most economists think that the U.S. exports industry. Right. Like manufactured goods. But the U.S.'s biggest export is food and what's called manufactured food, which is seen as a kind of industrial export, but is really just canned food and all these other sorts of things. You can't understand American uh, e- exports without first starting with the food. The food then provides the secondary effects that allow you know, Rockefeller and Carnegie and others to, to emerge. But food is really the kind of core of uh, America's place in the world.
3: Which is interesting, I think, too, because we could talk about oil as a commodity that's traded. We could talk about uh gold as you know a long-standing commodity that's been valued against currencies or 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 other goods. Mm-hmm. But there's something essential about grain, right? I mean, you picked grain for that reason, right? Uh right, right. And and both both grain and oil
2: are energy, right? They're both stored energy, um, uh, in, in a, a very con- a somewhat concentrated form. Um, oil replaces food i mean so so grain is what feeds people and it's what feeds workers and it also feeds horses um over time over the 1870s and 1880s oil is sort of replacing it you're starting to see steam engines and other things that are powered by um initially by coal but but eventually by oil the 20th century is a story of oil but but grain is always there grain is always a uh, and, and always has been for thousands of years uh, a, a a kind of crucial thing that um empires have have depended on and it's easy to uh just sort of follow the energy expressed in oil and not see really how important uh food is i mean look at arab spring right 2012 30 percent of the average consumption of people in those uh those four countries um is isn't food when food prices go up 10 to 15 percent which doesn't affect much of the rest of the world we see chaos and revolution, so so it, even today, um, food prices are a really, really powerful um, uh, kind of lever uh, in uh, how societies operate.
3: Yeah, I think that's the great insight from your book too. You mentioned at the outset at some stage as well, the, the, the Arab Spring and the other sort of revolutions mm-hmm. that happened throughout history. Uh, uh, I think it's thinking about the economy as energy is is I don't know. Is that a new thing, or is that maybe a longer standing tradition? But it seems to me to be we think we think about it more now as energy, and that's probably a good thing. And and obviously grain has a, a role to play as the food that powers us. But if we turn back to the Gilded Age and we think about the revolutions that were happening there, happening there with grain, we're talking about commodity trading in your book. And the futures contract comes into existence in the Gilded Age. So look, for not everyone knows what a futures contract is. I'm not sure I know what a futures contract is entirely, <laughs> but can you can you give us the sort of layman's version and tell us why it's important?
2: Sure, sure. So there's an advance contract. I'll deliver this to you and you'll pay me in advance. OK. And so that's ancient. That goes all the way back to the to the Greek world, if not earlier. Um, The negotiable, tradable contract—if that—if—if your promise to pay me, I can then sell to someone else. um, That really uh, goes back to the beginnings of capitalism in the 14th century. That—that—that contract to pay in 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 advance is really where we—I would argue—that's the beginning of capitalism, right? Is—is where those notes can be bought and sold uh, on a market. A futures contract starts in the 1860s and starts in the United States. And it's small, it's a standard quantity. It's not my ship with uh, uh, 7,000 bales of uh, wheat or something like that, Uh, sorry, bushels of wheat. It's 500 bushels or a thousand bushels. And it's small, it's a standard quantity and quality. And then with a legal authority, uh, a separate legal authority, which is the Board of Trade to settle disputes. So, what's important about that is that you can buy seven of them or ten of them. You're not buying somebody's futures contract. You're buying a bunch of futures contracts that are anonymous. And there's no need to decide if the party is legitimate. If my trade with you in the fourteenth century, you know someone would buy it, but they both they they want to know that you're legit and I'm legit, and there's actually a ship coming in with that stuff. Um, in a futures contract, there's no need to do that. It's an entirely anonymous transaction. Which is really important for grain traders because they don't need to. It's it's not common knowledge who's doing the trading back and forth. And again, that's very very new um, in in the 1870s, and it's kind of the world that we live have lived in ever since uh, 1863, December 30th of 1863, when the first futures contract was created.
3: Does the futures contract give advantages to some people? Because it seems to me that if you're the grain producer, the farmer, say. You know if there's a drought coming, or you're sort of on the front lines about where grain prices might go, and then the person at the end of that chain who has to take delivery of the grain is sort of left holding the bushel, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, does it work that way, or or am I mistaken? Can you get caught somewhere in the middle, or does the farmer get caught holding the can? I mean, how does it how does it work that way?
2: Well, well, yeah. So that's what's a little bit. That's what's unique and kind of interesting and, and ultimately attractive, although it's not really kind of thought of in this way at first, is that um the farmer doesn't necessarily know what's happening in the farmer in Kansas doesn't necessarily know what's happening in Odessa, right? Where the grain is also going to be produced. And so it might be a bumper crop in Odessa. And um and so you there's a you know, you see a lot a lot of people producing grain in Kansas, and you think prices are going to go up, and you don't realize that Odessa is producing all this grain and is going to pour it onto the market. Um, so farmers are actually uh, uh, there is some risk for them uh, because they don't really have all the facts that you that you'd expect, and so they might um, uh, you know s- sell some futures, but then hold on to the to the grain so they can they can hedge, right? They can they can. Um, buy or sell futures to uh, to cope with that. And then the person who's the bar, buyer of good grain, like the flour mill or something like that, um, they also want to buy in advance so they can rent, run continuously. Um, so neither one of them is, a, is essentially speculating probably. Uh, each of them is just trying to uh, stabilize the price so that they, um, the farmer is trying to get credit and to sort of stabilize the price. And so he might engage in the futures market either on one side or the other um the the person who's running the flour mill that's consuming it is going to want to buy uh, future grain because as soon as his <laughs> if prices go up forty percent and he's stuck and he can't operate the the mill, the whole mill can fail uh, in in terms of cost. So So I think it, it's it's not really understood at first, but it turns out that both buyers and sellers can kind of benefit from this market uh, by uh, by basically providing a kind of security for them. Of course, there there are thousands of other participants of this market who are just speculating on the future. Uh, lots of people are buying oil futures right now uh, because of what's going on in Ukraine, and that that uh, the ability to trade on news is the thing that makes uh, many many more futures contracts uh, uh, bought and sold than
3: are actually delivered uh, by people. And I guess nowadays we're not taking delivery of like you know barrels of oil, right? I mean that sort of is done away with but you're still gambling on the future that the market is going to go in. I suppose the question I have is, is, you know, does anyone, so the flour mill is trying to stabilize the market. Does it work out that way historically? Do futures actually help stabilize the market? Or are there instances where the volatility gets so extreme that actually people get caught? Uh, uh,
2: It it kind of depends on who you ask. But I would say that neoclassical economists have proven with some, uh, uh, with, 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 argue they they're arguably right i mean show just showing the numbers the variation in food prices has diminished since the futures market has arrived so um uh yes it's possible to corner the market on grain yes it is possible for there to be peaks of valleys 73 oil prices you know shoot up 70, 1973 they shoot up 1979 oil prices uh, oil prices shoot up uh there are periods where they're just astonishing uh booms and busts uh but the kind of monthly variation in, in prices has stabilized in part because of a because of a futures market. Um, it's not to say that you know people don't have inside information that they trade on, and everybody ends up paying more for their oil. That I've, that does happen, but uh, you know if we trust the numbers, and I and I and I do sort of trust the numbers. Looking at them, uh, it does seem look like we see less variation uh, over time. As these markets
3: uh, expand, it's well, fascinating, and we, we've got two hundred years of uh, well, nearly two hundred years of evidence. So, I mean, we should have a pretty good idea. Um, okay, so that's. I mean, I could spend a lot of time talking about that, but I think uh, we need to we need to move on to some other economic topics that might that that really make your book special. You write about consumption accumulation, cities in Europe. This just sort of really made me think about European cities differently. You know, places like Antwerp or Rotterdam you know how these cities came about what characterizes them as consumption accumulation cities can you can you tell us why and maybe give us a couple of examples
2: sure yeah so so basically after this revolution that we see with grain and the and the futures market in the 1860s um although it, it you know there there are, there are important changes that happened with the abolition of the corn laws 18, after 1845 but but after 1860 really what we start to see is that these consumption accumulation cities are basically cities with deep ports and they're going to make their ports deeper and deeper to attract bigger and bigger ships. Um, grain is going to be held in the ships rather than stored. Probably it's stored on the ships or in lighters, these, these little boats that are kind of floating in the water. Um, and what's happens, what's the same about them is the bread is cheaper in the cities than it is in the countryside. And that is revolutionary. That, that is just radically different from, you know, ancient Rome from fourteenth century uh, London. For, you know, the, no, there's no, there's really not a world in which food is cheaper in cities than in the countryside. But it is once you see, you know, two bushels of grain for every person west of the Rhine being shipped across the Atlantic every year, and um, and that's and again, it's 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 with with bread being something like fifty percent of the daily expenditure of workers. That's huge. It means it draws in all of these people because food is so cheap suddenly. Um, They aren't necessarily manufacturing regions. And that's one of the uh, Parvases, this person I study who's a Marxist, uh, wants to revise Marx in some ways. He says these aren't necessarily manufacturing regions, but they're trade regions and they explode in size. And uh, Paris has canals and and thus access to these same markets. Uh, It's it's a little bit more distant. but, but these, these cities just explode in size from 1860 to 1920. Um, market information is then suddenly much more important than access to you know, flour mills nearby. Centers of power are no longer government centers, they're the bourses, the, the, the boards of trade. The intellectual pulse of Europe is in the cities because it comes from the pulse of grain. So so this world is, it's a different world. It's a world where, where cities are attractive and that's, you, you will get manufacturing because there are so many <laughs> workers who, who rush to these regions who then become a kind of working class that's usable in all sorts of light manufacturing in places like London and Liverpool and Manchester and Antwerp. Um, but kind of counting the factories is not the way to go. Um, food is, and, and, and just, you know, bread is, is uh, cheap bread. Uh, Is a tremendous draw and really important Uh, and and has long term effects, too, on people's heights, because once you can buy bread for cheap, then you're going to buy buy other things for your kids. If uh, like milk and these other things, people get taller uh, in these cities for the for the first time in Europe, uh, starting in the middle of the 19th century.
1: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
3: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com people today. It's an amazing way to think about the Gilded Age and Progressive Era from a very different perspective that this, uh, the end user of the products, the process gets cheaper as you go along to that end user. And that's the revolution. And I, I suppose, is there, well, I'm gonna, I should ask you. Is the story about um, machines and mass production, industrialization? Is that what it's about, or is it just about transport getting cheaper and connections becoming easier? I mean, or is it? I suppose is it a combination of both of those things? Um, it's yeah, it's a it's a combination of both of those things. I mean, again, it's
2: it's so for for part of us, it's all about the paths, right? It's those black paths that, I w- that we were starting with, and if we, if we follow the paths, the paths lead suddenly into these deep ports. Uh, in a way that they didn't before. And then with all this cheap grain literally being dumped. I mean, you could argue that the United States is dumping grain by the 1860s. Um, we see the pressure to produce bread more quickly. There's just all this grain sitting in these oh, this cheap grain. And so there's pressure on what I call the last mile. And this is just I was a network engineer for a while and, and thinking about uh, Cables and networks and the last mile. The last mile is always the most expensive. You know, the the, the internet connection to your house is more expensive than every other part of the internet. Um, the pressure is on the last mile costs. So you put see flour mills in Leuven that replace, which are right outside of Antwerp, which replace the um, uh, you know all the all the uh, windmills and others. You see kneading machines uh, because just kneading bread is, is uh, mixing it up with the yeast is incredibly costly in terms of uh, effort. And so we see all these kneading machines emerge. And then we see mechanical ovens and movable plates. And so cheapening that last mile is something that the cities do. And that's part of that cheapness. Part of the cheapness is just all this grain that's being done. And part of it is the sort of technological capacity to uh, just produce more food more cheaply. And it's not just capitalists that do this. I mean, you see working, uh, organizations in, in Antwerp and, and Rotterdam and elsewhere that, um, and, and uh, that that take advantage of this and create powerful unions, be, which which have which sell food. I mean, we think of bread as something you go to the supermarket to get. In the late nineteenth century, you there were Protestant markets and Catholic markets and working class uh, socialist markets, and uh, and and the way in which you uh, consumed your bread. Uh, said a lot about who you were as a person and the cheapness of that of that food is is just um, it's astonishing in this in this late 19th century period that makes a huge difference in building
3: up Europe. So I think listeners are going to be keen to read the book because it makes us rethink trade globalization uh, certainly you know how one core commodity can transform the world for me and this is maybe massaging your ego a small bit the writing of the book is incredibly rich. And I mean, you're, you're a beautiful writer. Um, and that sounds like something I might say for a lot of books, but this one seems like it's on another level. And I wanted to give listeners an example. Chapter seven, it's called Boom. And, and it begins with an explosion, a boom, of a ship in Panama that blows up, which is carrying nitroglycerin. And then we read about the use of dynamite to expand ports like Antwerp to make deep water ports, a second boom or explosion. And then we get to a third boom, which is an economic explosion due to the nitroglycerin. I mean, the chapter is remarkable. It, it ends with the Franco-Prussian war, another boom. And it's not just a clever use of words. You weave together a lot of um, different subjects into this beautiful narrative. and it should be apparent to us but it's not been made apparent to us before and on top of all of that we have a pun so how in the world <laughs> how in the world can i write like this i mean please tell us what your formula is <laughs> uh
2: wow, so it's possible that it's just ADHD right that I can't stick <laughs> with one topic for more than uh I've you know so recently been diagnosed our 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 child was diagnosed with ADHD and I've discovered that this is why I can't stick with one topic for more than uh you know a few days is that i'm I, I wonder what's happening in you know Belarus at this point and you know and so um I think part of it is just, uh, a hoovering up information, at, and and then that other people have not written about because a lot of us in 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 this discipline to, to use a grain metaphor are in silos, right? And so we study this particular period, and we know everything about it and all the historiographical trends, but they're all linked. All these things are linked. We can't we can't understand American economic development without understanding what's happening in Russia, right? That's that's pr- primarily the pr- purpose of this. Um, it helps too that there's so much beautiful writing in the late 19th century about these transformations. And I so I'm channeling these dead writers you've never heard of, but who are lovely uh, analysts. Uh, this uh, this There's a, a British spy who's also an Oxbridge-educated uh, writer who's watching the Crimean War take place and describing it in kind of really fascinating detail. Um, the person Parvis, who is my man crush in this book, uh, is also a great writer. He writes in the thing that's hard is he writes in German, Russian, and Ukrainian. so uh, and and I took German in high school. I took col- uh, Russian in college, but it's uh it's it's a long slog to actually uh, j- translate that stuff. But he is a very concrete, very beautiful storyteller. Um, and yeah, so so while I'm reading these the quantitative stuff, uh, I think I'm also uh, absorbing the, the the writing about this, which which actually is quite uh, quite beautiful. And I think people tend to jump over it, pass over it, but uh, that's part of it. And I've always been a storyteller. That's to me, I became a historian because I wanted to be a writer, not because I wanted to be a historian. And uh, telling a good story uh, with as much detail and footnotes and things like that as I can has been kind of what what I've devoted myself to and then having being married to somebody who is willing to read your horribly complicated and convoluted drafts uh also also helps and then basic books i have to say that but the that folks at basic books uh really did push me to uh write in a way that's that's um as accessible as possible i mean you know steel driving man and these other books that i wrote were also accessible um there's this I guess this is method for writing that I've used a lot, which my agent taught me about, which is a kind of wandering narrative where you're getting from point A to point B, but you're gonna wander. You're gonna drift off here, drift off. You never take more than a page and a half to wander. You always lead the person back to the line of argument, but but you teach somebody in that wandering something that's related to your end goal, but you always have the end goal in mind. And that and that wandering narrative is it's it's fun. It's more fun to read than, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them and tell them what you told them. And so so trying to kind of master that meandering style has been kind of what I've been trying to do for the last 20 years or so.
3: You can meander in environmental history. I heard Megan Kate Nelson, great author and historian, uh-huh. you know, yeah. write, write about Yellowstone or talk about Yellowstone in a meandering way. Like you could walk through Yellowstone. Right. I don't hear a lot of people saying that about economic history. And I think <laughs> I think that's what's really remarkable about the book is that, you know, you can take us from future contracts to, you know, ports. And, uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful. It really is. Uh, uh, it is meandering. Um, well, I know that 1873 is also a year that's quite close to you, too. You've written about that in the past, the financial panic that happened that year. And you've written about the similarities of that panic and the 2008 financial crisis. What makes 1873 so interesting? And given that we're heading into this new volatile cycle where we don't know, really, this is a new the start of a new long cycle, possibly, with high inflation rates, Um, do you see parallels between now, and it can be about brain or about economics more generally now and that 1873 era?
2: Um, so, well, I mean, yes, yes and no. I mean, I think now, like as of today, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, what we're looking at is what's it, I guess what my book would suggest is that the, the Russian empire in the United States have been. Market competitors going all the way back to 1863 or 1864. Each of them are at the edge of Europe, and each of them have been feeding Europe and then the world from uh, the 1860s f- forward, all the way up until about the you know the Soviet period, say uh, around 1924. And the and so the short-term thing that's going to happen is a lot of people are predicting stock market crashes and things like that, but the United States is actually going to do extremely well from this war. I you know have to say because the US is exporting the things that Russia and Ukraine are exporting. So, uh oil prices and gas prices are going to go up, but the US is a net exporter of oil. So, so just this particular moment is is just kind of evidence of this story, this you know that that uh like Tocqueville talks about where the US and Russia are are both the kind of simultaneously the bread basket and then by the 1870s also the uh important um, uh, oil exporters. Um, So what happens in the 1870s is this long-term transition to this new system where an empire can import its food. Farmers become weaker than traders. And the similar to, um, and then in the 1870s, it was a race to the bottom in prices. What we're seeing now are prices are gonna go up for grain and oil. But then it was a race to the bottom, a cheapening of delivery. And then as cheap delivery comes about, you see everybody kind of rushing to make a big, take advantage of of this new stuff. Um, Yeah, so that's, um, the US will likely benefit at the expense of consumers in this period. Um, uh, Consumers like Europe, Japan, South Korea, and even China um, are gonna, uh, this place where, the Russia Ukraine ex- exports have been important this is going to be destabilized in part by uh, Putin's attempt to take Ukraine uh and um and even China is going to have because it has a protein gap because of the African swine flu that took place about 3 3 or 4 years ago there's a huge protein gap in China um and so food prices are are likely to go up so um so yeah i, I there's no I, I don't want to make predictions but i think part of the thing to understand the reason that the us and ukraine are are so intimately connected is that because we we're we're both where the planes are and the planes are important um uh producers of of food uh yeah so that's i guess (laughs) i I would have answered this very differently four or five days ago but uh what we're seeing now is uh is not an 1873 scenario it's a
3: 1914 scenario. Uh, It's a scenario where food is suddenly cut off. That's really interesting that you say you would have answered it differently four days ago. I mean, four days ago, I think the Federal Reserve was still talking about inflation as something that's transitory. So you're you're now you you think that sort of really the prices are going up, then inflation probably isn't that transitory. I mean, do we have other historic examples that we might be able to not necessarily compare exactly to or parallel, but you know, say that it has a, a flavor or a rhyme to what's going on now? 1970s? I mean, there's been a lot of comparisons to the 1970s.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, so the creepy one is 1914, right, with the with World War One, where Russia wants to control the Black Sea and is willing to do anything to do it. And World War One is to- ordinarily told as a story of German aggression. But I think uh, Russia's desire to control the Black Sea all the way up to Istanbul is. And that was the goal from Catherine the Great forward that um, it's this is the global war. You know, I, we we think of it now as being just Russia and Ukraine. But um, but we are intimately interconnected, all of us in a kind of world economy from uh, we and we have been for a very long time, but a world economy of food and a world economy of oil. Um, that means that uh, all, all of these things are related. The disturbing comparison to World War One is, of course, that this just does spiral into this controversy over the Black Sea, uh, spirals into um, World War One. And I don't <laughs> there's not enough time to explain exactly how that is, but but you know trust me, World War One part of that story is about the control of the Black Sea that Russia fears because Istanbul because uh, the Ottoman Empire has a dreadnought for the first time. And it lines up troops at the border of Germany and it threatens war, and war is what we get. Uh so uh just in terms of the economy, I you know it's it's hard to say. I do think that inflation in terms of food is probably not transitory if this continues. Uh, Africa uh and um there are lots of other places that are consuming Ukrainian food. And I don't think I I don't, you know, I don't think things are gonna be uh just sewn up altogether. I mean, I do fear a, a much more much longer term conflict. Um yeah, four days ago I think things were when when uh I, I was worried when when Putin said Ukraine has historically been a Russian uh a part of Russia that it, it was clear that this was not just
3: Don uh Donbass, that this is something something much greater back to uh control of the Black Sea. And I think uh, obviously you're predicting to a certain extent here, but also looking back in the same way. I mean, P- Putin's talking about World War One too. So it's not much uh-huh. of a, a, a I mean, it, it's a historical analogy already four days ago. That's what he was saying. Um, OK, well, I, I don't want to put you on the spot too much more about that and get into the predictions, because I know it's a hard business yeah. to get right. Uh, but let's get back to your man crush, as you, <laughs> as you call it. How, Alexander Parvus, who is a very interesting character that I suspect a lot of European scholars will know of, but in the public sphere, I'm not sure he's a well-known name like Trotsky and Lenin. Can you tell us why he's so central to the story of Russia and to the story of global grain?
2: Uh, Yeah, so I I think even most Russian historians don't know about Parvus. I think only, you know, the people who know about Parvus are Trotsky, like Leninists, who think that Trotskyists get all their uh, all of uh, Trotsky got all of his information from Parvis, so he's he's really a kind of dark uh, character. Not very little well, uh, not that well known, uh, even even by people who study the Bolshevik period. Um, So Parvis saw all this happen as a young man. He saw the United States displace Odessa, uh, saw New York basically displace Odessa as the world, as a, as a feeding place for the world as a young man in his teens. And he comes up with a theory of the international economy that we now call world systems. I I think that's not too, you know, so we, we talk about world systems and we talk about, you know, uh, historians say Arrighi and Wallerstein and David Harvey and things like that. Those people are channeling Rosa Luxemburg and Rosa Luxemburg's closest associate was Parvis. So I read, and I was, I, I came across Parvis. Uh, I was reading Rosa Luxemburg's letters, and she said everything I learned about the mass strike, and the international economy, I learned from Parvis. I'm like, who is Parvis? What, what does Parvis even mean? It's not not even a Russian name. It's a Latin name. And, and um, so he comes up with this theory of the international economy that there's a world system of capital where the world is inter- interconnected. He talks about these black paths as being the kind of keys to understanding that empires are much weaker than we think. Um, The people who are most motivated by him are Rosa Luxemburg, Lenin, and Trotsky, all close uh, associates of his. Uh, Iskra, the Spark, which is the uh, uh, Russian newspaper that's published uh, in in, um, Europe and and, and in Britain, is, takes place in Parvis's apartment. Um, he's the one who's running the printing press. He's the kind of person behind the scenes in much of this. Um, and he so I've been talking about the role of grain, uh kind of coming up with this explanation, uh, like the 90s, 80s and the 90s. And when I came across Parvis, it was like he had he uh I felt like I was cribbing everything I knew from him because <laughs> and it was embarrassing that he was saying exactly what I was saying uh only 130 years earlier, and I'd never heard of him. Uh so, um, or 100 years then, early, 120 years earlier. Um, yeah, and so he's the person who sees the, the, the power of grain. He's the person who basically builds up the Ottoman Empire and makes it possible for Turkey to hold off um, the Allied powers at Gallipoli, uh, largely by arming them. Um, he's the person who persuades the German government to send a sealed train of Bolsheviks and Mensheviks to the Finland Station to start the Russian Revolution. Um, so it's not just that he understands it. He becomes actually a multimillionaire uh, by tr- trading in grain. Um, but he he helps bring it about. He's really, in a way, the architect of uh, the Russian Revolution. Now, when I say this, um there are these Russian anti-Semites who say, you know, oh, of course,, uh, you know, there's nothing uh, even even um Putin would say, oh, of course, Parvis is important because Parvis is the Jewish mastermind, you know, uh, intellectuals, a lot of these anti-Semitic stories about Parvis, And I'm, that's not the territory I want to go into. I don't want to say he's, he is the Russian Revolution, but his understanding of the, the grain trade means that he understands where the weak points of these empires are and understands that those Black paths are ultimately, he understands this ancient story, which is that, again, that those Black paths are how the world works. Like we, it's it's not that trading started in the 10th century or the fourth century, it started in 8000 BC and, and empires grow on the back of that. And Parvis really understood that and uh, kind of helps us understand how to understand the world in a, in a
3: very different way. You have said that he's been maligned by pop culture in the book as well. There's two motion pictures you go over, I think a TV and a movie, a TV show. Uh, can you tell us about how he's perceived today by modern audiences? So, you know, it's funny,
2: you know, again, no, I, I, I you'll, you'll find one in 10,000 Americans who know who this guy Parvis is. He's become an important character in the Ottoman Empire because initially for many years, he was seen as a sort of architect of the modern Ottoman state, the t- modern Turkish state. Uh, he was, um, but now since... Added, um uh, since the sort of takeover the kind of increasingly turk um uh, ottoman islamic kind of uh, uh, emergence of the, the turkish empire the return to a kind of um the, the sort of islamic nationalism uh he's he's portrayed as the sort of wily speculator who threatens uh turkey and uh in, in this story about uh, the 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 years of the, uh, Tur- Turkey's period from nineteen forty uh, let's say nineteen hundred to uh, nineteen twenty he's perceived as a sort of wily uh, Jewish person who's brings about the creation of Israel and um, it's just every kind of anti-Semitic story you can imagine is is kind of poured into the Parvis story um, yeah and so he's seen as a a kind of corrupter of empires and in Russia, it's, uh, you know, the in, in Russian television, RT1, uh, he is in this, in this tel- television, fairly popular Russian show, he's seen as the person who basically destroys the Russian Empire and puts Lenin at the top of it. So if it hadn't been for Parvis, the Russian Empire would have continued, everything would have been great, but this speculator comes in and he puts, uh, Puts Lenin in power, and that's you know way too strong uh, uh, an argument. But the fact that th- there's a little grain of truth in in this story because Parvis does understand you know precisely where Russia, the Russian Empire, is weakest, and he goes for that point. And and Lenin and Trotsky uh, follow him. And uh, it, it's it's not that he it's not the money necessarily that's the issue because he does you know help provide German funds for the for the Bolshevik revolution. It's it's this fundamental understanding that food is how weak empires are and how dependent they are on food.
3: He's one of those characters that I'll, I'll never be able to forget or think about now certainly for 20th century history, late 19th 20th century history. Um I have I have a, a, a glaring omission though that I need to raise. <laughs> you know, in 1919 I'm I'm in Ireland right now. Uh, The world's largest Jameson distillery is like, you know, a 15 minute drive away and talking about grain, (laughs) Ireland is a huge producer at that time of barley and wheat and even some oats as well. In 1919, it was an epic year for Irish grain and the vintage whiskey that was made that year was just (laughs) legendary. And I mean, spirits uh, that rely on grains for their production have often been seen as a currency. And I'm just wondering, is the next book on whiskey or do we do we have to I mean, because if we if we need a conference on whiskey, I can arrange that. I can find some way to make it happen. Where's the whiskey in this story?
2: Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, So so the the uh energy person in me would say uh that you know that my my i don't know if it's environmental history or just sort of sort of history of uh, baklav schmil is this person who who influenced me a lot who t- who kind of gets us to think about energy but uh, alcohol has a lot to do with sugar also right so it's it's not just the grain it's it's also the sugar and you, you need a tremendous amount of sugar to make alcohol and um and, and there are, there there's something about sugar that changes, you know, with Napoleon, the sugar beet industry emerges because uh, all this sugar comes from the Caribbean, the Haitian revolution t- takes that away from France. Um, and, and alcohol is, is different, I think, than, than grain because it's high value and low weight, right? And so that makes it more like, and it's a drug. So it, it makes it, um, the black paths aren't quite as important because it's rel- relatively easy to move these things around it's a little bit like gold or silver or something like that so it's it's not quite the um it's it's an important commodity and it's and and uh uh actually the probably the most alcohol-y story about about the <laughs> this project if i could move from whiskey to vodka is um that uh the the, the romanovs figure out that um a, the, the best way to tax Russia is to tax its alcohol, uh, because it's high value, uh, low weight and, um, quite difficult to do. Uh, it's quite difficult to make alcohol without killing you. Um, you know, the distillation, the, the, double distillation and the, and the whole process. And, um, and so that's a very, uh, easy thing to control. So I. Uh, I do think it's important that uh, what what's Ireland has does all, also have is great ports, and so its access to to sugar uh, it, it explains why I think it's you know it's at the ports where you see the best distilleries. Uh, I, that's a terrible answer, I know, to to this.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, th- I think it. I think it's. It, it offers an inroad to further research, possibly, because <laughs> it seems to me the fact that that whiskey or or vodka is portable, non perishable, and makes it more like gold and silver means that it can be used like a currency, and therefore the economic absolutely the economic historian in you surely has been stoked to hear, and the curiosity <laughs> is going to lead you to a conference on whiskey. Hopefully, make sure I'm a part of it, please. <laughs> will do. Okay. Okay, Scott, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there because uh, I, I know we could talk more about this, but I I have no doubt that uh, people need to go out and read this book for themselves, digest it, and really think deeply about its contents. It's it's a masterpiece, and I can't thank you enough for coming onto the show. Thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, February 22nd is when it came out. Basic
2: Books. Uh, thanks, Mike. This has been great. I you know uh, d- to talk to somebody who's who uh, really knows and cares about all this stuff and is irritated by the. Uh, the arguments uh, the, you're not quite irritated but you're struck by the arguments the irritation will come later so uh <laughs> thanks too for highlighting thanks to for highlighting the the places where this uh where i depart in many ways from uh the other historians. If, if you um if you see me uh you know uh, penetrated the heart in a in a book review by a european historian you know uh uh after watching this, listen to this podcast. You'll know why.
3: I well, think that means you're doing your job, right? I think that's that's a that's a positive <laughs> feedback. <laughs> right,
2: right. Well, thanks again, Mac. It's great, it's so great to talk to
3: you. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, MichaelPatrickCullinan.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen, because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.